I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 67th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that we should not arrogantly or ignorantly reject Jesus as did the Jews and Romans, but rather recognize the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice and in so doing, stay out of hell. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. So our lesson for this morning on October 25th is the 67th part of our sermon series on the last year of the life of Christ. And the text comes from Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 as combined by our harmony of the Gospels. And in that, uh, in those passages of Scripture, the Bible says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land and the sun was obscured. At three o'clock, Jesus said in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God bless the reading of his word. And let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, I made the point that Jesus chose to fulfill the scripture and die on the cross because of the prophecy in Luke 18 and 33, which records, they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now, Jesus chose to fulfill the scripture and die on the cross because to do so was the will of God. Jesus chose to fulfill the scripture, although to do so meant that he would have to die on the cross as his enemies mocked him and rejoiced around him. His disciples forsook him and his mother grieved and cried around him. Now, in the Jewish economy, a mother generally had complete responsibility for her son for the first seven to eight years of his life after which time the boy was turned over to his father so that he could learn his father's trade. And even after her son was turned over to his father, mom was still an important person in the boy's life. Think of the traditional mother role that women played before the 1970s, when women considered their husband and children as their primary responsibility, rather than being secondary to working outside of the home. But interestingly, Mary considered Jesus to be her primary relationship, although Jesus did not consider Mary 
to be his. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50 records, while Jesus was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But we can understand why Mary considered Jesus as her primary relationship when we examine the fact that Jesus refers to brother, sister, and mother. But there is no reference to Mary's husband, Joseph, the man that was known as Jesus's earthly father. Mark chapter six, verse one through three records, then Jesus went out from the other side of the Sea of Galilee and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is Jesus not the carpenter, the son of Mary? and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So those in Galilee knew Jesus as the carpenter, Mary's son, rather than as Joseph's son. And this indicates that at this point in the chronology, Joseph is probably not alive. As a matter of fact, the last biblical reference to Mary's husband, Joseph, as a living person is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 49, which says, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it, did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his answers and understanding. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So Mary is probably following Jesus because Jesus is her oldest son and her husband Joseph is not alive. In addition to this, Jesus is definitely not married, and his brothers probably are. Since the last biblical reference to Joseph occurred when Jesus was 12 years old, it is likely, although not definite, that Jesus' four brothers have all been born by the time Jesus was 12. So when Jesus started his ministry at 30 years of age, his brothers were all at least 18 years of age. 
And at the time of Jesus's crucifixion, four years later, they were all probably 22 years old. And in Jesus's day, most young men were married by their 18th birthday and certainly by their 22nd. But although Mary was focused on Jesus, Jesus was focused on the salvation of the world. In the lesson in Matthew 12 that we just read, Jesus made it clear that he had bigger fish to fry than tending to his birth family as during his birth, during his ministry, his birth family was not all that accepting of him. John chapter seven, verse five records for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now his brothers, like his people in the hometown, had a hard time accepting the fact that someone that they knew as a little boy could actually be the savior of the world. Jesus' ability to perform miracles notwithstanding, Jesus knew this. As Luke chapter 7, verse 23 to 27, Jesus said to them, You will surely say to me, this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also in your own country. Then Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And prophets are not generally heeded at home because home folk generally ignore the teaching of those whose diapers that they change. And the reaction of those in Galilee to whom Jesus was speaking proved his point, as Luke 4, 28 and 29 records. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Now the Jewish leaders in Galilee were prejudiced against Jesus because he was one of them coming from Galilee. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were prejudiced against Jesus because he was not one of them, but came from Galilee. Jesus' disciples forsook him and denied him, because the Jewish leaders did not accept Jesus. The many people that Jesus helped were in Jerusalem for the Passover, but although they shouted Hosanna when Jesus came to town, they were not there to stick up for Jesus as the Jewish leaders turned him over to the Romans. And when Jesus was crucified, they stood and watched as the Jewish leaders and the Romans taunted him. So, although Jesus ministered to many that needed his help, at the end, the only ones there were the women in his family. The Bible says in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, it was about noon. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. But the Apostle John is the one disciple that has not forsaken Jesus. And in his writings, John identifies himself in the third person, calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved. 
And often we hear this dyslexically, thinking of John as the disciple that loved Jesus. But John does not say that he loved Jesus, but rather that Jesus loved him. Let me explain the difference. In Mark 14, 27, then Jesus said to the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This prophecy came to pass when the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested and then Peter denied Jesus in the courtyard. Interestingly, John was never molested by the Jews. As a matter of fact, John's account of the crucifixion has more details than either Matthew or Mark, as Matthew was not at the cross and neither was Mark. John also has more details than Luke, whose gospel is a research history rather than an eyewitness account. And John tells us in John 19 and 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Peter went as with Jesus almost as far as John, but Peter fell prey to the wiles of the devil, as Luke 21, 31 and 32 tells us. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus prophesied Peter's denials, but there is no such warning or prophecy given to John because John was the apostle that Jesus loved. Jesus loved John and protected him from the trials that the other apostles had to face. Now, John was no more a perfect apostle than any of the rest of them. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56 records Jesus' rebuke of John as it says, now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked James and John and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. John wanted to call down fire from heaven just as Peter wanted to cut off ears. Both of them were zealous for Jesus' safety and comfort, but both of them exhibited the spirit to destroy men's lives rather than save them. But Jesus chose to save John for the trials and tribulations that the other disciples faced while allowing Peter to be exposed to the wiles of the devil. And as far as I can see, there was only one reason. Now, I made it my business to not look over my son Paul's shoulder when he left home to go to college. When he was eight years old, I started telling him that he would be on his own when he was 18 because I knew that when he reached that age, he would need his own space to do his own thing. 
And since he knew that I was not trying to make decisions for him, he felt free to ask me for my opinion when he had a decision to make. But Paul made good decisions and eventually Paul took a job that I considered to be very lucrative and prepared to move out of the house into an apartment in the town in which he was going to be working. I had a conversation with him just before he left home and gave him one direct instruction that I have given him since he left home to go to college. I let him know that if anything happened to me, it would be his responsibility to look after his mother. And I gave him this instruction for one reason. The Bible says in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And this is why John was the only disciple that was not molested in any way through Jesus's trials, while the other disciples were being threatened, being afraid, and being unfaithful. Jesus wasn't all that close with his birth family. He was much closer to his disciple than his brothers, and even ignored his mother and brothers when they came looking for him. But when Jesus was planning his sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and was spotlighting sin in everyone that participated, the Jews, the Romans, and the apostles, Jesus kept one beloved apostle, John, in reserve to look after his mother. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how or why Jesus chose John over the other disciples. But the Bible does tell us what Jesus chose John to do, and that was to look after his mother. Jesus did not entrust his mother to his brothers, but to John, as the lection tells us, from that moment on, this disciple took Mary, Jesus' mother, into his home. So, son, rather than naming you after the Apostle Paul, I should probably have named you after the Apostle John, because your job is to take care of your mother if anything happens to me. Now, I don't plan for anything to happen to me. I'm planning to live a long life and spend many years dancing with your mother once she heals from her surgeries. And, sir, you don't have to curtail your life in any way to take care of your mother. I'm sure that she will have the intelligence to recognize the difference in the relationship between a man and his mother and a man and his wife. Genesis 2.24 tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Biblically speaking, married couples should not have mother-in-law problems. Both a man and his mother or a woman and her mother should recognize that their relationships are secondary to their marital relationship with their spouse, which is primary. And one day my son will pick a woman to marry. His mother and I might agree with his selection, or we might have the personal opinion that he should look for someone more fitting. But my plan is that we will support his selection because we understand that which Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And since everyone is a sinner of some description, 
I can find fault with any one young woman in which my son is interested. There is something wrong with every woman because there is something wrong with everyone. But the key question that I have is, are the two of you willing to work out these things that are wrong with you, regardless as to what they are? In other words, are you willing to take one another for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do you part? Because if you are willing to do so, you can work through any problem. Genesis 2.24 tells us that the purpose of parents is to raise their children to the point of maturity and then allow them to leave the nest. And one of the great tragedies of our time is that many parents don't realize this, but cling to their adult children, even though the children should be released to get on with their lives. And it is important that husbands and wives continue to bond properly with one another after their children are born so that child raising becomes a secondary relationship while their primary relationship is with their spouse. When either or both parents develop a relationship with their child that they consider primary, they tend to cling to their child as a buffer between themselves and their spouse rather than pushing their child into independence. And if the marital relationship is not primary, the child has difficulty escaping the nest and the parents have difficulty maintaining their marital relationship. But forewarned is forearmed. And Marie and I know that Paul's marital relationship will be his primary relationship while his relationship with us will be secondary. That means that when we go to visit Paul in his marital home, we will recognize that we are guests of Paul and his wife, and we have to be content to be guests, not parents. Good guests don't come to your house and rearrange the furniture or intrude on your privacy in any other way. So Jesus protected John from the trials and tribulations that the other apostles had to face so that his mother would have a home in which she could visit permanently. And having taken care of this last earthly responsibility, Jesus began the last part of his passion. As Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 tells us, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land and the sun was obscured. At three o'clock, Jesus said in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, labasabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the prophet Habakkuk asked God about his interaction with men in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, which says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now God is too pure to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Then how could God have dealt with men from the beginning, from the garden, 
when the nature of man is to sin constantly. God deferred his wrath against man's sin, anticipating that there would be a sacrifice for sin that would be worthy to atone for all the sins of man. The sacrifice that God anticipated was his only begotten son who voluntarily sacrificed himself for the sins of mankind. And during the three-hour period of darkness, God took vision from the land. Remember that there were no torches lighting the cross as Jesus was crucified in the morning and this darkness began at noonday. And for those of you who may not realize it, there were no electric lights, no street lights to illuminate Calvary. When the Bible says that the sun was obscured in the middle of the day, the Bible is describing an unnatural total darkness for which the men crucifying Jesus were unprepared. And this great darkness obscured God's vision of Jesus as God poured down all of his wrath against sin on Jesus. God is too pure to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness, and Jesus hanging on the cross symbolizes to God all of the sins of mankind. Jesus, while on the cross, was as God-forsaken, while on the cross in the dark, was as God-forsaken as any hell-bound Center. Maurice S. Rawling, a cardiologist at the Diagnostic Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, came to faith in Christ as a result of an experience with a dying patient who kept screaming, I am in hell. Rawlings wrote in his book, To Hell and Back, the patient began coming too, but whenever I would reach for instruments or otherwise interrupt my compression of his chest, the patient would once again lose consciousness, roll his eyes upward, arch his back in mild convulsion, stop breathing, and die once more. Each time he regained heartbeat and respiration, the patient screamed, I am in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. I was scared to death. In fact, the episode literally scared the hell out of me. It terrified me enough to write this book. The patient said, don't you understand? I am in hell. Each time you quit, I go back to hell. Don't let me go back to hell. Hallucinations, I thought at first, but most victims say, take your hands off me, you're breaking my ribs. But he was saying the opposite. For God's sake, don't stop. Don't you understand every time you stop, I'm in hell? And as a result, I started working feverishly and rapidly. By the time this patient had experienced three or four episodes of complete unconsciousness and clinical death from cessation of both heartbeat and heartbeat and breathing. And after several death episodes, he finally asked me, how do I stay out of hell? I told him, I guess it was the same principle learned in Sunday school. I guess that Jesus Christ would be the one you would ask to save you. Then he said, I don't know how. Pray for me. Pray for him. What nerve? I told him I was a doctor, not a preacher. Pray for me, he repeated, and I knew I had no choice. It was a dying man's request. So I had him repeat the words after me as we worked right there on the floor. It was a very simple prayer because I did not know much about praying. 
it went something like this. Lord Jesus, I ask you to keep me out of hell. Forgive my sins. I turn my life over to you. If I die, I want to go to heaven. If I live, I'll be on the hook forever. The patient's condition finally stabilized and he was transported to a hospital. I went home, dusted off my Bible, and started reading it. A few days later, Dr. Rawlings approached the patient with pad and pencil in hand for an interview. When he asked him about his experiences in hell, the patient did not recall these experiences and could not remember being in hell. However, after he recovered, he became a strong Christian whereas previously he had gone to church only occasionally. He did remember the prayer that they said together, then losing consciousness once or twice after that. And although he did not recall the experiences in hell, he did recall standing in the back of the room, watching the medical team working on his body on the floor. He also remembered meeting with his mother and stepmother in one of the death episodes that took place after praying with the doctor. Rawlings wrote, the meeting place was a gorge full of beautiful colors. He also saw other relatives who had died before. He saw his mother for the first time. She had died at age 21 when he was 15 months old and his father had soon remarried. This man had never even seen a picture of his real mother and yet he was able to pick her picture out of several others a few weeks later when his mother's sister after hearing of his experience, produced some family pictures for identification. There was not a mistake. He was astounded, and so was his father. And Jesus gives us the case of the utterances of a man that is enduring the penalty for sin when he says in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, labasabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And fortunately for us, Jesus, like the man who prayed for salvation as he was dying, recovered from the torture of being forsaken by God. The darkness ended, and the Jews and the Romans were able to relax, react. As the election in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 continues, when some of those who were standing there heard it, they said, look, this man is calling for Elijah. And now Jesus, knowing that everything was accomplished, said the words, I am thirsty in fulfillment of scripture. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, and one of the men ran to it at, at once. He took a sponge, filled it with the wine, put it on a hyssop stalk, and lifted it to Jesus' mouth. Let him drink, he and the other said, Let's see if Elijah come to take him down and save it. The Jews misunderstood Jesus' cry to God, but the Romans understood Jesus' cry for something to drink. And Psalm 22, 14 through 18 describes Jesus' crucifixion when he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws, you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing 
they cast lots. And the bones out of joint, out of joint refers to the skeletal activity of crucifixion, which dislocates bones. The piercing of the hands and feet refers to the nails that fasten Jesus to the cross. The decision of and casting lot, the division rather of and casting lots for Jesus' garments are direct fo directly fulfilled by the Roman soldiers and Jesus' cry of thirst fulfilled the prophecy that his tongue would cling to his jaws. Of course, Psalm 22 is a Psalm of David, who was the king of Israel for 40 years, sometime between 1012 BC and 920 BC, depending upon which commentator that you choose to believe. So Psalm 22 was written at least 900 years before the death of Christ, and it serves as an accurate prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion experience. And since Jesus has endured the separation from God required to atone for our sins and fulfill the biblical prophecies of his crucifixion, Jesus is ready, Jesus is ready to end his passion experiences as our text, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 tells us, after taking the wine, Jesus again cried in a loud voice, it is finished. Then Jesus bowed his head. Father, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after saying these words, Jesus yielded up his spirit and breathed his last. Jesus did everything that was required to fulfill the scripture. He took care of his earthly responsibilities by delegating his mother's care to John. Jesus took care of his heavenly responsibility by dying to fulfill the scripture and to atone for the sins of mankind. And then, having completed his tasks, he committed his eternal spirit to our maker, our father, God. Jesus voluntarily gave his life physically on the old rugged cross in such a way as to prove the prophetic power of God and in the presence of witnesses that transmitted the experiences to us so that those of us that are willing to believe them, believe in God's prophecy, believe in Jesus's sacrifice, and believe in Jesus's lordship over our lives can avoid hell. Jesus's beloved disciple John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus himself testified that his life is about our avoidance of hell, as John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God offers us heaven as a free gift through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let us not arrogantly reject Jesus as did the Jews, or ignorantly reject Jesus as did the Romans, but let us recognize the purpose and the prophecy of Jesus' sacrifice 
And in so doing, let us stay out of hell. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. This is God our Father. We thank you this morning for this lesson. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bless us as we consider the sacrifice that you made on the cross. Help us, Lord, to tend to our mothers and our loved ones. And help us, Lord, to do those things that you did. And then help us always to have a word on our lips that we might be able to tell some man, some woman, some boy or some girl that although the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that which you did on the cross and we thank you for the evidence that you have given us that we might be able to retrace your steps in history and recognize the reality in serving a true and a living God. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.